Hey, hey, listeners, good to be back with you again this week for part two of my conversation with Zach Barkman. Last week we looked at scripture and translation issues, the inspiration of scripture, gender distinction, stuff like that. This week we're going to dive into more specific things in 1 Corinthians 11 and whether or not women can be deaconesses and also going to spend some time talking about how to interpret Genesis. But before we get there, what a week this has been. It is crazy. I I think I uploaded and prepped the podcast last week on Tuesday or Wednesday. And that would have been March uh, 10 or 11. Today is March 17. And so much has happened, at least here in California, in the last five to six days regarding the coronavirus. It has pretty much shut things down. Events getting canceled, um, work getting canceled. I, I... do handyman work, uh, small minor construction projects on the side. A lot of my clients are in the age range for the most critical age range for the coronavirus, and I'm get I have to postpone work or cancel work because of it, and so forth. And the event last week I talked about the Men of Purpose event coming up next weekend, the 27th and 28th. That's looking like it'll probably be canceled. Haven't heard for sure yet, but Indiana's, I think pretty much every state has regulations on meetings 100 people or 50 people um and so all kinds of things just being turned upside down churches canceling their services uh people not uh, san francisco i know has has been residents have been told not to go out of their homes unless they have to get essential items and i wouldn't be surprised if Something similar happens here in L.A. in the next day or two, but I guess we'll see. This, it's unprecedented times. It's crazy. It's I I don't have anything to compare it to in my lifetime. I'm 29 years old, and I look back and and you know it's kind of crazy. We we talk about all the different things about this virus. Um, you know, it first started coming on our radar in in our family, kind of the middle of January. My wife was watching it develop in China and so forth. And and then the end of January, it's spreading into some other countries as well. And about mid-February, then you start hearing of it coming to the States. And and now it's, it's a very real thing that we're living in. And the whole time, for, for me, uh, February, even into March here a little bit, I, I keep thinking of H1N1 or back in 2009 and even other flus that have happened and just how that didn't shut things down. But this is this is shutting down entertainment. It's shutting down sports industries. It's shutting down our economy. It People are taking huge, magnificent hits to stop the spread of this virus. And you know, there's there's a lot of different things that I've seen going around on social media, even stuff that I've, I've been sympathetic to. Like, is this way blown out of proportion? Like, H1N1 didn't shut everything down, and it infected way more people. But there's there's some really good stuff out there. A um, uh, couple YouTube videos that I've seen. One is on Bluffton, Ohio. Another one is done by Finney Curavilla at Sattler College. Um, there's a lot of helpful articles that, that are showing the data of how this thing has evolved throughout the world and what it's doing so far here in the States. And literally within a couple of weeks, we could have over 20,000, 30,000 
people infected in the United States and at the at the rate of death that this one is is taking if we don't take it seriously now we're going to overflow our hospitals and people will die not so much from the virus but from the fact that they can't get the care they need at the moment and so you know you look at stuff like that and and um something i've been thinking a lot about is and i've seen some conversations about this going around as well how do christians respond in the midst of a virus like this how do christians respond in pandemics and i think chaos like this pandemics like this or any major life-threatening experience is our opportunities for christians to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to put others first and we can do that because of confidence that we have in where we stand with Christ. And this looks differently. So I have a homeless friend. In in a couple of hours, I'm going to be heading out. I've got a job to go finish up. And then I don't know when my next job will be. But while I'm down in this area, I'm going to go check on a homeless friend that, that comes to our church periodically. And I keep thinking about him. I think about here in LA there's all kinds of homeless people and who's caring for them like if they're in their tents underneath an overpass uh, in a canal that's where they hang out that's where they live and their their um, way their temps are way they have an extremely high fever are they going to be able to get up and walk into public <laughs> Uh, a healthcare center or someplace and get checked out. Um, if they were to stand up and, and groan or moan to somebody, I need help, are there people who are going to help them? Or is everybody just freaking out about their own welfare and their own being? That's an opportunity for, for me as a Christian, someone who's, I've got confidence in my place in Christ. And so I care about these people. We don't just ignore the homeless people or the people that don't have means or don't have care because we're going to protect the elderly down the street. Like we still have to get out and care for all people. So I'm going to go risk my own health, risk potentially getting infected because I care about Manny and because I care about others among us. At the same time, thinking Putting others first may also mean that we cancel church service. It may mean that we limit our contact with our grandparents or, or other elderly uh, members of our church, members of our community, because we know that they, they are the ones at risk. Most of my clients are over 60 years old. And so I've just this week I've been contacting them and letting them know, like, hey, if you would prefer me not to come, that's fine. We'll reschedule this. We'll, we'll do it sometime later and uh some of them have been no comment you know the project was short or it was just outside we didn't have much interaction or, but there's been some that have canceled some that have postponed and and so as christians this is the opportunity to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to put others first i think sometimes we get confused in our in our plush american settings we feel somewhat guilty that we don't suffer like Christians on the other side of the globe. We don't suffer persecutions. And so we see the government tells us to stay home. And we can tend to see, oh, I'm going to 
I'm going to go out anyways. We're going to keep gathering. We don't fear death. We don't have... And it's it's as if that is our our light. Like our bravery is our light. Our our willingness to to die is what sh- demonstrates to the world that Jesus is alive and that we are, follow him. But that's actually not. Um, I'm trying to think right offhand if there's any place in Scripture that talks about. Obviously, Scripture talks about denying ourselves. But that's the whole point. What does it mean to put others first? What does it mean to deny ourselves? Am I willing to deny the image of me being such a brave person so that I can put the elderly among us first and respect and and distance myself from them? You see, living out Christian faith in a plush society as America is going to look different. If we're talking about something, the government is persecuting Christians. They have said no more meeting, gathering together ever, period. You're not allowed to do that. Then we're going to have a different conversation. Are we going to listen to this? How are we going to restructure our meetings? Um, Because we don't want to unnecessarily put ourselves at risk at the same time. We're going to continue meeting together as God has called us to as a church, right? But this is different. This is going to pass. This is, an, this is a sickness that will pass. And they're just asking us to do that so that fewer people can die. So that we don't unknowingly... And the thing about the, this um, virus is that you can... It's... Um, how do they call it? Asymptomatic. You can have asymptomatic infection. Meaning that before you carry the symptoms you could actually be infected and you're infecting other people and you, you don't even realize you have the symptoms. And if you have the symptoms, you've already probably infected a lot of people. And so that's what makes this so much more challenging to rein in and to, to uh, handle because we have cities and communities being infected long before anybody knew there was an issue. And so... I just I think as Christians it's an opportunity for us to not worry about our image, not worry about our reputation, but truly put others first. That's what Jesus said. They would know that we are his disciples by our love for each other. When we are in his word, John I'm I'm shadowing John Uh, basically John 4 through 17, when we are in his word, when we obey him, and when we love each other. That's how people know we are his disciples. And love is putting somebody else first. And so, you know, if I go check on Manny, if I find Manny, and if I discover Manny is doing fine, that's great. If I discover Manny's sick, I'm going to care for him. And then I'm going to self-quarantine myself so that I don't get the rest of our church community sick or whatever. I... I, I hope Manny's fine. I, I hope he's doing well. I, we have no reason to believe he's not doing well at this point. But it's been raining here in California, plus the virus. And so it, it's just been on my mind. I'm going to go check him out. But there are people in our lives we ought to go out. We risk ourselves for that, right? And then that doesn't mean if, if we do engage them, we help the sick, then let's let's be sanitary. Let's be careful then about the rest of the people we interact with let's practice self-quarantine let's not just flaunt ourselves out i'm going to go visit everybody right now because i want to make sure they're doing well um 
we can send an email we can check in um, there are other ways we can care for people but it also means I'm gonna put other people first by perhaps canceling our services uh, perhaps not going to certain events perhaps not visiting certain people that I love and care about because I don't want to put them at risk and yeah that's kind of what I've had to say what I've been thinking a lot about um, the other thing and this is something we can go around and around and around I have I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that the left and the right want to make a political issue of this they want to blame the other side for the way it's being handled or for why it's happening people want to blame the media for the blow up this is not a political issue folks this is something to take seriously I've got siblings in the medical field plus you can go around and use Google Scholar and dig up some real raw medical data and you'll find out that this is something to take seriously obviously uh, illnesses or viruses like this have happened before but we just because it's happened before we don't say oh this has happened before so you know as long as as long as it's not that more people die than what happened in 1918 no we like let's see if we can do it so that not near as many people die hey why would anybody have to die and so that ought to be our goal let's not be cynical in trying to politicize it or put a put a a political motive behind it i've seen some people spreading facts around how this is no different than the virus or h1n1 is you know was worse and my appeal to that would be continue doing research i mean it's there's new stuff coming up every day and more and more the medical community is taking it seriously i know i know the medical community there are plenty of people in the medical community that are saying like wait a minute we don't have to freak out like everybody's been but it is a serious thing to take seriously and it's not something to just be like well this is you know media hype i'm sorry billion dollar industries don't forfeit profit for potentially a quarter of their fiscal year just because it's media hype like this this is a serious thing and now President Trump is today um, come out. He's going to be giving the White House is going to be handing out cash for uh, workers, American workers. And you don't do stuff like that if it's not a real threat to individuals, a real threat to our economy. And so let's let's do our part as the body of Christ. Let's demonstrate what it looks like to put others first. Because you know what? I'm confident of my place in Christ. I'm confident if I get sick today visiting Manny, and if I you know, God forbid, if I if I would get sick and if I would end up dying, I know that I will go to heaven. I have peace with God. And the thing that would hurt me the most is leaving my family. I want to continue to walk them on that journey. At the same time, I have confidence with Christ. I know that my spirituality is not defined by showing up at church on Sunday morning. I know that my spirituality is not defined by me being able to demonstrate to others that I'm brave. My spirituality is defined that I have faith in Jesus Christ. And out of respect for elderly in our community, I want to protect them. I don't want to infect them. I might be fine. Yet at the same time, maybe I'm not. Like There's other data that shows how even young people getting sick, um, it's leaving some lung damage and so forth. So 
this is something to take seriously. Let's take it seriously. Let's let's put others first. Let's not try to um, turn this into a political thing that we just throw away and ignore. Let's do what we can. And while we're doing what we can, if you are looking for something to listen to, uh, something to uh, provoke your thinking or, or cause you to find solidity in your faith, you can join us as we enter part two of my conversation with Zach Barkman about scripture, translation, different translation issues we deal with. Uh, again, this conversation is rather sporadic, um, or in, uh, I don't know if sporadic is the word, but we just kind of go through as two friends, uh, different questions that we've had. And um, I love talking to Zach because he's in translation work specifically, and I'm just in Bible study. So I hear about some of the translation debates, but I don't really know the, the conversation or what's all behind it. And I love hearing his clarity on some of that and, and perspective. So join us for part two. My, my mind's just going to a whole bunch. Like First Corinthians 11 talks a, a lot about um, Paul in verses, what is it? I think it's six through nine, something in there. He goes on this like little weird kind of rant about man being made before woman. Woman is made from man, and yet man is not independent of woman. And, you know, it, it's kind of hard to know what all he's saying. Right. Um, and I wonder sometimes if part of why it's hard to know exactly what he's saying is do we have like if our view of submission or um uh head headship is the the language mm -hmm. used in first corinthians 11 um what it means to be head or to be have a th authority under authority um and if women are are supposed to be submissive to men or husbands like the way I have typically heard headship and submission talked about makes it sound mm -hmm. makes it really really difficult to know for for a single lady to know if she's being submissive or maybe specifically mm -hmm. let me say a single adult who no longer lives at home like we, mm -hmm. we use the the language we talk about it has a lot to do with family and mm -hmm. and even like i don't even know i haven't studied the the history of th this kind of view like what is it bill gothard that that introduced the concept of of daughters being submitted to their dads or maybe that existed before bill gothard i don't know but but i guess i'm wrestling with like what is what does that actually look like is there is the in in the first part of First Corinthians eleven where Paul kind of reminds the people of the the man is the head of the woman and Christ is the head of the man and God the head of Christ um, 
And yet then he talks about the woman having authority on her head and he he changes. Man is the image of God. Woman is the glory of man um, because woman would also be the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so his point may not necessarily be about, um, well, definitely not about significance. You know, man is more significant right. or... But maybe his his point might be that man and woman stand on the same authority plane and in their position in Christ are one and are equal and need each other. Like shadowing back to Genesis, need each other in this journey of faithfulness to Christ and, and sa- uh, salvation and participation in, in reconciliation mm. and that yeah I don't know I'm just kind of rambling thoughts and a bunch of this I might just edit yeah out I, because... I spent all my time in, in, in college in first Corinthians trying to prove that uh, or studying to see whether um, because it did make me dig in whether Paul's talking about a material covering or the hair so that was that was where all my time went. Oh, it uh, was. Yeah. The holiness, the conservative holiness. Um, they would believe it's hair? That's right. So what yeah. did you find out? Uh, <laughs> uh, there was a, the most compelling argument I heard was from, uh, from the Old Testament where men wore, the, the priests wore coverings on their head, right? They wore a turban. And so the argument goes, well, if, if, men are supposed to stay uncovered because they're the image of God, then they were the image of God in the Old Testament, but they covered their heads with the material covering. So the covering can't be material, um, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Huh. I so that was a very strong objection. And actually, one of my professors um, was a Mennonite who um, who is still wearing the covering, but because of that argument, isn't sure that that's even what First Corinthians is talking about. Um, but she's still wearing it because she she believes God told her to personally. So it's it's a strong argument. Um, Isn't uh, what do you make of Paul's going back and forth about how if a woman's not going to cover her hair, then she should cut her hair? Uh, that's um, something that I didn't feel was dealt with satisfactorily. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a big that's a big sticking point for me. Yeah, and they would say, well, uncut hair is the is the covering, not just long hair. So Paul's uh, saying. If a woman's going to cut part of her hair, let her cut it all off. Is basically what Paul's saying, and I um, um, hmm. wasn't quite convinced by that. Although yeah. I spent many hours, um, yeah, reading yeah. material. Ben Are, Withering has has some really good good work on um, on the covering. Ben Witherington. Ben Worthington. Um, New Testament. Witherington. Witherington. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I our church just went through this last fall just studied 1 Corinthians 11 just to yeah. kind of yeah. And um and in studying for that time, I I did quite a bit of study too. And the only position I guess I didn't read any holiness um movement <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But ironically, the only position position that I found that actually cuz there's there's plenty of scholars who who don't think Paul is 
making a statement for all Christians, all places right. that they need right. to. That's the typical evangelical argument. Yeah. But most of those would still believe that Paul is referring to a exactly an act of covering. Not not okay. necessarily one particular material, but an act okay. of covering, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, John MacArthur was John MacArthur's fairly big on it being hair. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I okay. through um through master stuff. I saw I saw that. I guess I'm assuming it's John MacArthur. Maybe it was somebody. I think it was an article from him that I was reading. Um, and so I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, the Calvinists disagree too, then, because R.C. Sproul is pretty strong on it. Oh yeah, yeah. He's. <laughs> yeah. I I listened to some of his stuff on it too. Yeah. Um, anyway, that I I went down that rabbit trail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a thought that I was gonna say, and now I forgot it. But anyways, oh, that's gonna bug me. <laughs> so anyways, um, I guess yeah. It, so then, part of. Like a New Testament example of something that that I. So are there? I guess I'll throw this question out, and then I'll give an example. Are there places throughout Scripture in in your study where it feels the English, some of the English translations have have um, made something look primarily like a male responsibility that mm. that may have not been. And an example that I would have is Phoebe. She's okay. not talked about a whole lot, but the same word used of her work or who she is is the same word that's used for Paul. For mm-hmm. her, it's translated servant, <laughs> and for Paul, it's translated minister of the gospel. That's right. Phoebe in Romans 16. Um, so... She is called a, in Greek, a uh, diakonos. Um, I learned a different Greek pronunciation than maybe the traditional one, so I sometimes mix them up and get it all wrong. But um, uh, diakonos, which probably sounds familiar, um, deacon. And and sometimes that in the New Testament, that's a technical term for a a person in the position of servant. Um, there's There's an official, okay, you're the servant of our church. But sometimes it is, it is used, um, (laughs) <laughs> as um, not in its te- technical sense. And so I think it's interesting that we we prefer to, um, with Phoebe, we prefer to say, well, she was a servant. Um, and with others, we were fine with going with Deacon because he's a man. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one side of me would say, that's bias, and she was definitely doing more than cooking the meals. <laughs> yeah, because it... or, or, um, whatever our yeah, cooking the meals or, or or watching the nursery. But I would say also, I think the preference to to keep it from from translating it deacon might be or deaconess because it's gendered. Um, mm-hmm. Would would probably be well, but Paul says here in First Corinthians fourteen, First Corinthians eleven that a woman should be. Silence. So, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But and then, I think it definitely refers to something more than what we. What yeah, we used to. yeah. Well, I mean, even in that in that passage, uh, you have Priscilla and and Aquila, and yeah, um, the King James. I think was the first one to switch it around and have Aquila's name come first. 
That's fascinating. I didn't know the King James did that. And uh, and so like, but in in the in the Greek, it's Priscilla first, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah it is. And which would indicate, or may, maybe not that alone, but other parts would indicate that she was maybe one of the primary persons in the in the work that they well, did. Well, yeah, I've read that yeah. even Paul usually refers to the husband first, or the New Testament authors do. Yeah. Um, I think I've that. So that's that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and and so it's like we yeah obviously I'm not um like one thing that we don't see anywhere in scripture is a lady being one of the apostles and and being um you never see a lady priest now there's there's really cult, uh strong cultural arguments that like God is working within the the right. cultural dynamics of the day and it was a a highly bent uh male dominant culture and so it wouldn't have been receptive. Um, and I don't really know what all to do with all of that, but Mm -hmm. at this point, I'm just saying like, even within what we see here in scripture, clearly these ladies have, have more like imagine some of our, some ladies doing this type of thing today in some of our churches. Would we be comfortable with that? That's what I would say. I am still as firmly, I don't know if I like the term complementarian, but I'm still as firmly, um, yeah, complementarian as ever. But yeah. but at the same time, imagine, you know, a, a bishop of our church is greeting um, this, you know, you, both of you are my, um, my compatriots, uh, Andronicus and Junia, down in verse 7 of, of Romans 16. Um, my compatriots and my fellow prisoners, and um, and and assigning the the transmission of a letter um, to a woman. Uh, you know, you're going to take the whole, you're going to take my whole um, message to this to this church. So um, there's there's something about Paul, as much as he gets a bad rap for um, by by non-believers or whatever for being um, mm-hmm. against women. He he. Um, it's amazing how much they were part of part of his, of his work. ministry here, and and the same thing when you look at Jesus, he had he had women following him. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we need to need to recapture that. Another place you you mentioned ways we tend to read the New Testament um, in a different light. Um, the text where it says uh, he who does not provide for his household, oh yeah, worse than an unbeliever. I think. Um, Infidel is, is sometimes how it's. Yeah. Um. Anyways, that text, um, often is translated with, uh, with gendered language referring to a man. Um, the Greek is neutral. Um, not that it doesn't have gendered pronouns, but it uses a neuter, I believe okay. a neuter pronoun. Mm-hmm. And historically, it was interpreted to be talking about the widows, that 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 he's talking about earlier in the chapter that don't let them be busybodies um you know they need to they need to um not just go around gossiping and 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 not being busybodies but and then it's and then it says and then it says you know for because whoever doesn't take care of their own household is worse than an unbeliever and John, john calvin interpreted this if i'm if i'm remembering correctly John Calvin interpreted this to mean he's talking about the widows there. He's talking about the women. And but since we come to this 
you know, in our culture, the man is out, um, you know, doing the breadwinning or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we go, well, uh, it's neutral. So clearly he's talking about men. And yeah. um, now you still have to deal with texts like, you know, let the women be keepers at home. But but there are some ways I think that sometimes we <laughs> we just kind of map how we understand it onto the, onto the text. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'm getting that from, um, I think it's Nate Pyle's book, Man Enough. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really interesting book about masculinity and, mm-hmm. and gender roles. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I have to check it out. Yeah. No, this is this is good. It's interesting to me. I don't I hope it's doesn't feel like we're nerding out or anything. It's <laughs> we're uh, always happy to do so. <laughs> always we're already at a hour and a half here, but um I <laughs> um mind if I just ask you some broader questions about Genesis and Yeah, great and stuff like that. Um how do you interpret Genesis? That's the big question. And um, one of the things that I wrestle now I'm getting a call. Um, one of the things I wrestle with is that. So I come at this from a as an author, as a writer, um, I know that I have an intended message I'm trying to communicate whether it's a blog article or a book or, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes I use uh, instruction, like just straight up, here's how to do it. Another time, my boys are calling for me. I'm trying to hear if they need me. (laughs) Um, Another time I might make a point through hyperbole or... um, use a figure of speech metaphor simile or something to to create a picture help people understand okay mm-hmm. i i'm i'll be back i'm they're yep, they need something. you're good sometimes i might say something sarcastically and trying mm-hmm. to make a point that way um or so, anyways, all that just... Oh, my. <laughs> Sorry. They lasted pretty long, I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think uh, we had a video going for them, <laughs> so okay, they, they last longer when we do that. Yeah. But then th- when that call came through, it's it's my it's my other uh, MacBook, and I have an iPhone, and so it knocked their video off. And oh, <laughs> so my wife was in the shower at the time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, anyways. I'm trying to remember where I was. Uh, how it feels to be an author and, and trying oh, yeah, to teach yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just um, – so like to me, it's it's made a lot of sense to to begin trying to find like what, what is the genre of mm-hmm. of a certain book? What would the author have 
meant how would the audience at the time like i never thought about the fact that genesis would have been written or or told to an audience that's standing getting ready to enter into the promised land Hmm. like it's not somebody necessarily uh, sitting there watching things go down yeah 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 and and so that you know that all of that like changes or shapes i guess you could say it doesn't necessarily change but just shapes like or colors in fills in like some interesting perspective as i read through the the old testament um Hmm. and so when i when i go when i hear different ways of interpreting genesis and um i'm trying to get at so when we talk about being faithful to scripture, we're trying to get at what the what God was intending to communicate, mm. right? And kind of what we touched on before through the original language. Um, that would also would would that not also include? So not only did he use the language of the people, but would he have told events and stories in a way that's similar to how? people in that time would have um and so but then you talk so if you refer to genesis as an epic and some potential of some metaphor being used or um then people get concerned that you're minimizing the 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 historicity of the events or or even that like how how do i know anything is is for real or anything is how 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 do i know first corinthians isn't just a one big metaphor or, yeah. um, what it, what are some of your thoughts on that or how how do you approach genesis um <laughs> yeah so um are you a big ken ham supporter <laughs> <clears throat> whatever my positions on um on Genesis and the age of the earth. Um, Ken Ham is, is certainly not my, my prophet. <laughs> I actually, I was a little bit disillusioned with, um, with answers in Genesis, Ken Ham a little bit. Hmm. Um, when I studied the Hebrew of Genesis one, because it, it's not as simple as either side makes it look. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, You'll hear people say when you talk about, and I agree. I think God used different genres to communicate His truth. Um, nobody would say that. Um, well, some people would. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are different. There are different pictures um, and creation, like the poet poetic form of creation in in, in Psalm. Is it one hundred eight or one hundred five? I I'm going to get myself in trouble. Yeah, but some, somewhere anyways, um, that's very poetic, and, and clearly not everything happened exactly like that goes. But, um, so I think God uses different genres to communicate his truth, obviously. And if it's, and if it's uh, poetry, then we need to figure out what God's saying through poetry or, or whatever genre it is. That being said, when people say, um, well, Genesis is clearly not a historical narrative. It's a poem. Um I, I I get off that wagon pretty quick because mm. um, it's the grammar 
uh, again, this is, goes back to not to a benefit of studying the, the languages because you can be in on the conversation. Otherwise, you're locked. Otherwise, you're locked out. Mm-hmm. But um, the the Hebrew grammar is is certainly uh, a historical narrative. You know, whatever you say about Genesis, you can't say, "Well, he's he's writing a poem." And sure, there's some repetition, like the evening and the morning, or the whatever day. Um, mm-hmm. The 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 verbs used, and I was actually just reading uh, two days ago an article by a by a scholar. Um, I think it might have actually been a statistician, but he took oh, all yeah. the he took several passages like Judges. I think it's fifteen, where it's a poetic retelling of uh, Barak and Deborah, and and a, another poetic retelling of the creation story. And then he took other parts from the scriptures uh, that are just straightforward historical narrative, and he counted the verbs and what kind of verbs are used uh, in poetry. Imperfects and perfects are always used by far the majority in historical narrative. Um, it's always the um, it's called a preterite or a vav vav um, uh, vav imperfect. Anyway, so the verb, the grammar, there's there's a lot of different markers. Mm-hmm. Um, grammar is historical narrative. So so it's not just poetry. Mm-hmm. The the question is. When 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 he's writing and it is a historical narrative, you know, some people would say, well, but it's in the same way that other cultures, then like Assyria or um, or whoever had their creation myths, and they were told as a uh, as an epic, as a historical mm-hmm. narrative. Um, this was in the same way, but it's it's trying to make some theological points and not necessarily give a give a scientific textbook history or whatever mm. so that's one thing i would say don't don't call it poetry um mm. and then and then it's clearly portrayed as obviously there's huge debate about this but yeah. but i'm con- i'm convinced that it's clearly portrayed as six consecutive days that were 24 hours long um now you can say well yes but the earth was formed or the universe was created in verse one millions of years before this starts or um, yes, he's portraying it as six consecutive regular days, but he wants you to understand that it's metaphorical. You can say that, but you're going beyond. Um, you can't argue that the author was thinking, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna show that this is ages of time or or um, that kind of thing." Yeah. So, I do have some opinions. What the what the and and I've spent hours and hours on it. What what the author is trying to communicate. Um, what the grammar says, but um, I guess there's still some there's still some unclarity to me. Like, yeah. you know, verse one says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then then you have the creation week, and some people would say, well, this is this is much later in history that the creation week is actually starting after verse one. Mm. So, you know, I that's possible. I don't know. What's your take on it? Yeah. Oh well, <laughs> the the. I'll give my take on it, but it's going to sound a little trite and there's a lot more thought and depth that go into it than, (laughs) um, I think the message, I think we tend to, when we bring our questions of science to Genesis one and two, we tend to miss the, the, the whole message that's trying to be set up. Um, and that we, we don't have to, have a stance or a position on the on whether it's 24 hour days 
in order to get that message and grasp that message. Of mm -hmm. um, now, I, I do believe that how we get to whether or not it's we believe it's 24 hour days like you're you're talking about the grammar of what's written and the markings and so forth um like do do the majority of people out there who read genesis um genesis 1 and 2 as historical narrative have they taken that journey or do they just open the bible and read anything of it and just believe it's literal according to their their um 21st century american eyes does that make well, sense that's how, that's how i argued for young earth creationism for years was yeah. because ken ham told me <laughs> that uh that the hebrew is very simple um uh, about the days and stuff and um that there's no nuance there and i i just i just believe that and i don't think that's an honest way you know whether yeah. or not you study the original languages like compare some translations and see what people that love the Lord are saying about it. Yeah. And, yeah. And, so, and so, so you can love the Lord and believe something a little differently. Imagine that. <laughs> um, so one of the questions that I have, like I have a lot of questions about it. And so I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think I have my flag stamped pretty firmly. <laughs> Although, um, so as a, so if Moses, I think, I think we have, some things to wrestle through if we the traditional thought is that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and most of Deuteronomy, right? Right. And if Moses wrote those all, and you look at and and I'm I'm gonna ask you, this is my observation, and I'm gonna mm -hmm. ask you to confirm my bias. No. <laughs> you need to correct me or uh point out something. But just just considering the narratives, considering what's going on, and, and even looking at a lot of um, the grammar from an English perspective, but I realize that's actually kind of dangerous uh, to try to figure out grammar just from what you see in English. Um, that the, um, and part of the, just to clarify what I just said, part of the reason I would say that is because like Hebrew poems would have a rhythm and a structure to it that right. would not get necessarily get rendered in English and we wouldn't realize we're necessarily reading a, totally. an acrostic or whatever. Like it doesn't make, right. we don't see that Lamentations is one big acrostic or, or most of it. Um, and so, but going back to, to Genesis, um, Genesis covers what, 40 generations, I think? Oh, I don't know. Something <laughs> like that. A ton of generations. And then you have three generations from Exodus through Deuteronomy. And mm -hmm. so it's clear that Genesis is a, is a much broader scope, uh, not telling as much details about each events as you get in Exodus. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, obviously Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy are primarily laws and, and kind of laying out the the rituals and the, the right tabernacle and all that. And then numbers, you would have more narrative again. Um, so something, so either, either Genesis, there's something different about the genre, mm -hmm. or maybe not even necessarily the genre, but the, the, the point that's trying to get communicated mm -hmm. as opposed to the other four books. 
because mm-hmm. it's a it's a much higher level perspective. And then there's or it's a different author who's writing mm-hmm. a different and but that I mean that was I I personally believe that it is Moses. Mm-hmm. Or I have no reason I have no reason not to believe that it's not Moses. Um and so I mean even then isn't it like chapter ten is like within the within the chapter I don't have it right in front of me it would point it would seem like that was actually written after chapter 11 but it comes before chapter 10 I mean it becomes before uh, yeah I think uh, are you talking about this is the book of the generation of yeah 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 and and so just this this the fact that the the author is clearly arranging things to to communicate a narrative right rather than just record events mhm does that make mm-hmm. sense right and and so i guess like all of that just kind of arouses some questions within me like what is what is the point even just a clear structure so you've got you've got good good creation good creation rebellion and then everything just gets really bad and then chapter 12 comes and the whole narrative of redemption begins yes and um so clearly there's a there's a broader point in genesis than just recording that this is how the earth was created or that angels had sex with women or you know all these um uh, even like the, the the people of Shinar and so forth like that. Like there's um, all kinds of questions we could get into as far as specifics of them. But that that was maybe like those specific things were not maybe the point that Moses mm-hmm. was trying to communicate. Yeah, I think so. And I think exactly how exactly the timeline might not be the main point. Of, of what what Moses was trying to communicate what God was trying to communicate through Moses um, I think I think you're right that sometimes in the debate we miss the point of, of a lot of this like so so Genesis is somewhat similar to a lot of other myths that were out there mm-hmm. um, about the creation week and for instance yeah um, one that said well uh, the reason that the gods created the world out of chaos was because they were sick of doing their own labor, digging canals, <laughs> yeah. and so they, and so they, they created people to be their slaves. Um, in all of those stories, there's all these com- competing gods who create men to serve their own ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, in none of those stories are are people created in God's image, unless they mm-hmm. are the kings. The kings get to have God's image and His mm-hmm. glory. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just propaganda for these. For you know the Assyrians or or um, the Babylonians um, or whatever to, to support their their oppression of, of other people. Yeah. Well, Genesis comes along and says, no, there's 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 only one God. He doesn't even have competition, and and he created man and women in his image to help him to rule, not to be his slaves, but to rule over creation. Hmm. Um, that's a really incredible message mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. that we um, 
miss and that I missed in my zeal to, um, <laughs> to I don't know, to prove the Darwinists wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's really beautiful. And we need to, we need to capture that. Yeah. That being said, um, I think one of the, one of the huge points of Genesis one is how this all began. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what all the myths are trying to communicate in that world. And so that's, I think that's what God is trying to communicate to his people. This is how mm-hmm. it worked. Mm-hmm. And, um, evil, like, uh, so this mm-hmm. is why, this is why, um, this is huge to me. Like when we talk about Adam and Eve, when I see Jesus saying from the beginning, he made the male and female. And when I see Paul talking about Adam, um, and the problem of evil being dealt with based on Adam and his sin and, um, and that history, I just can't like, that's so foundational and I just can't trade that in for, um, for a different narrative mm-hmm. because that yeah. seems good to me. And that's, that's a huge point of that, of that narrative in Genesis, yeah. Genesis three as well. So yeah. yeah, yeah, there are these, there are these, these themes that we miss when we focus on, well, exactly how does this history work? But if we, if we give up, I, I just, I don't know. I struggled to give up this man, Adam, yeah. head of these real genealogies, um, who was the first human, um, yeah, that seems so clear in the New Testament as well. So, yeah, and um, so like w- to be clear, so I I think I I agree with you pretty much. I don't um, basically where I'm at is so I I was taught all my life twenty four hours six yep. six literal twenty four hour days, and I don't think there's enough evidence within Scripture to say it's different than that. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to work hard to try to prove that, that the earth is not young. Um, Mm. but I don't think it's like, I think, I think you can be faithful. I, I know you can be faithful. I know people who have a strong belief in God, strong confidence in God, strong confidence in his word and a desire for a holy life who would mm-hmm. who would believe that there is room within Genesis 1 and 2 for an mm-hmm. old earth right. and and i i can see some of that um and so like one of their responses would be you know one of the questions i had to my prof as we were studying this um either in the either in the old testament class or in my church history class i forget but both we bump into Genesis one and what what the church does with it and uh, and so that's the question that I've had. Paul refers to the one man Adam often, uh, especially mm-hmm. in um, Romans when he's talking about mm-hmm. the the narrative of salvation, Israel's history, and and the process of coming to or the work that jesus does for us um and so what do you do with that like paul seems to to see it as one man and and their their response would be that that yeah i mean it's it's clear paul is referring to one man it's not like adam is you know it's not one man it's actually like a whole group of people or whatever but that 
that could it be a narrative or an epic that is told the people of Israel about the origins that like maybe that guy's name was actually Steve <laughs> and uh, and and Paul would have understood that narrative within the same framework that the the other ancient people understood the narrative um, right or so I I like that's all that's kind of a rabbit trail stuff that um but well I think go for it um I I um I don't know exactly where I'm at in the whole debate <laughs> um I basically I think I think the grounding for me is a historical Adam is the first the first person um and that in some way death entered the world through his sin mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. the age of the earth um some some things I'm not as read up as as I should be, um, but that's really the I, I'm I'm less sure about some of these some of these um, scientific issues than I used to be yeah. because, um, but but so so a historical Adam is the first is the first person is is the ground is kind of where where I've where yeah. I'm drawing, but I think one thing I've found is I I, I used to have such an attitude. And I think I've sensed it in our in our churches um, against people who who have a different view of Genesis than us. And um, and I mean, I judge their motives. Like, man, you're just trying to, you know, you're you're going against the word of God. And yeah. I and didn't view them as as sincere um, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to realize, uh, first of all, that um, that that's never been um, a dividing issue. Uh, in the creeds or, or for the uh, an issue to divide over hmm. and, and also that hmm. there have been um, church fathers um, like uh, origin and I believe Justin Martyr um, who understood Genesis as something of of uh, n- not not super straightforward in other words yeah. maybe they were on earth but but it's not well it's not a this is pointing to a, a reality that's it's beyond this and so yeah. Uh, unless you're willing to cast them out of the kingdom, <laughs> um, we need to have grace um, for yeah. people with, you know, not kick them out of leadership or teaching positions or or yeah. or the kingdom because they because they interpret it differently. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the the as you mentioned before, the 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 message of God as good creator of all, creating man in His image man given the responsibility of ruling man choosing to rebel instead of trusting god enters this trusting relationship with the serpent or the gods of this world or um like that's the clear message and that's the whole like scriptures wrestling through that dynamic of man choosing to try to be god himself instead of bearing the image of god and and i i don't know i've i've been kind of all over the board almost changed my mind before I, I think we've had a, a social media conversation about it mm, but mm. The difference between that narrative and um, millions of years of death and pain and suffering um, before man ever rebels and and gives away this beautiful creation that those are two completely different narratives and I just can't reconcile them mm. um, mm-hmm so that's why I'm still yeah 
know if you call it a special creationist that draws yeah. the line at him. So <laughs> special creationist, I like that. Um, <laughs> where have you read any of like John Walton or um, even N.T. Wright? Yes, I have. Yeah. What, what well, do you... No, I've watched. Yeah, I watched him. Okay. He he's I think he's the one that talks about um, Genesis one as a uh, a temple building narrative. Yeah, like mm-hmm. um, that was common within ancient Near Eastern people to have a six day progression of the building of the temple that you create the space and then you come back and fill it. And the last thing you place in the temple is the image of of, the, of whatever God it is. Have you read have you read his his work at all? Or? Who, which one? I have uh, not, John Walton. Walton. I've read um, uh, The Lost World of the Torah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Actually, yeah. I'll be honest. I read enough to say that I read more than 50% of it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I didn't read all of it, but the, yeah. Uh, as far as that part, I read through. Um, but sure. that, I think he's got a more a Lost World of Eden and the Lost World of Genesis, which probably goes okay. into it even more. But, And then I've, I haven't read right. I've just um, listened to different lectures and stuff of his. But um, mm-hmm. what is your take on something like that? Yeah, so I think um, this is one place I think I agree with William Lane Craig about Genesis, which is actually kind of rare. Um, <laughs> but um, he critiqued John Walton, and and I think um, I think John Walton's right about um, the way that the scriptures tie in this temple imagery to Eden. Like mm-hmm. there's Eden, God creates it, and then later you have the building of the of the tabernacle and, and these it mirrors it. And then the temple, the building of the temple. It's like yeah. there are these themes. But and so I think that's beautiful. I think the um Bible project mm-hmm. has yeah. excellent podcasts and a YouTube video about that. Go yeah. watch my goodness, go watch the Bible just project. Bible project everything. <laughs> yes, just Bible project everything. And they bring it out beautifully. And I think that comes from John Walton a lot. But yeah. then what John Walton wants to say is, okay, so this creation week is only about mm. uh, functional creation. God is assigning function to things that were there already before. Um, he's not creating them ex nihilo from nothing. And hmm. that's where uh, um, it's like William Lane Craig says, well, what, why doesn't Genesis just start with the, with the calling of Abraham or with the building of the tabernacle? Like, why is there this creation story? And if you look at, at what creation stories, what that genre um, was meant to do yeah. in that time, it's always to explain the origin of all things. Yeah. Not just, not just the function of them yeah. and God assigning, assigning a certain function. And so I think he takes it too far. Yeah. That's interesting. The, I think we should see those themes and be like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. You know, Creation was a temple for God, you know, yeah. and it's now separate. But to say that that's all God was doing, um, I think, goes too far. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't have necessarily picked that up from the Torah book. Okay. Um, but rather, I'm trying to think, because I read a couple books on Genesis. I'm trying to think what. Like that's, been- that's one thing that I appreciate about EBC is that they do a fairly good job of getting several different perspectives and well, so and I, I never know that quite as much yeah. and so it's something that I've had to do on my own and that's so valuable yeah so I'm I'm not sure if like that may have actually been how Walton was but I was reading another book at the same time that that gave some counter 
perspective. Yeah. But um, because what I came away from was just that. Yeah, that's that's gonna make me go back and look at that again. Is is he saying that there were things that existed before, and this is just a temple building? But it, or is God creating from nothing, creating this temple on which man dwells? And and it's possible. I know in, in what I listened to from William Lane Craig, he's critiquing someone um, that um, basically follows Walton. Oh, it's okay. possible that it was actually. A student of Walton's or another another person who's built off his work. Yeah, um, I might be saying that wrong, but I felt like it was a critique of what of what Walton's trying Over to Walton, say. Yeah. Well, actually, things existed before. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I like Walton's stuff was definitely. Um, I would say, like, I would recommend it as a as a resource. But it was one of those books where I was constantly thinking through what he was saying like what what is he <laughs> which is actually probably how we should read everything but um it's not like you just because there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that he presents that is kind of new um for instance the yeah the torah as common law not as statutory law um we as 21st century americans okay. are very used to statutory law um, yes, I see. Unless it's laid out clearly. Uh, Tim Mack, the Bible Project talked about that. I yeah. didn't know that comes from Tom Wong as much. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure where. I'm sure Tim Mackey gets it from some other uh, professor or something that he gets. I don't know if he gets it from Walton. But, yeah, um, he, might, he might actually. The, uh, which is, yeah, that that's a whole nother, that, Well, There's a lot more we could talk about. It's man. 11 o'clock. We've been talking for two hours. Yeah, uh, man. This has been good. I appreciate it. We didn't even get to atonement, which is something that I would really like to talk about. But <laughs> Good, because that would have gotten me in a bunch of trouble. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll just throw this question at you. Is Azaz- Azazel, or however you say that, is that a goat or a god? Oh, I have never studied that. Really? No, I'll have to go look that up. Yeah. Um Azazel? Azazel, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I know what you're talking about, but I've never dug in. It gets rendered scapegoat, but yep. in, um, let me see if I can pull up the passage. Uh, Leviticus. Oh, I was here, and then I left. It ta- uh, here, Leviticus 10. I mean, 16.10, verse 10. But the goat chosen by lot for Azazel is to be presented alive before the Lord to make purification with it by sending it into the wilderness for Azazel. So Azazel, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that I'm reading in the HCSB and most other translations, it's it would read the goat chosen by a lot for okay. the scapegoat. And they just transliterate it. Yeah. But it it's sent out in the wilderness for Azazel, or I think some translations say as Azazel. Wow. So is, in other words, is is this, it's not that big of a deal, but um, it's kind of interesting to think about. Azazel is the name of the desert god oh, wow. um, in, I forget what religion, Sumerian desert god. Wow. And so is God basically, so is there, what I would have grown up thinking that you, you, uh, symbolically put your sins on 
this goat and then you send the goat out of the camp yep. mm-hmm. and that's taking the sins away. But is God saying that these sins that you got from this desert God, you're going to put them back onto this goat and you're going to send them back and say you don't want anything, essentially saying you don't want anything to do with with wow. this God. We are Yahweh's people. That is um, fascinating. And so I didn't know if you had studied that at all. Or, I haven't, um, but thanks for that, yeah. Asher. I'll, I'll yeah. um, definitely look it up. Yeah, and then there's other stuff like uh, atonement, how it's a lot of our translations would translate it as like getting into substitutionary atonement, um, propitiation, propitiation expiation, yeah. like all that <laughs> stuff. That, but we can save that for another time. Well, if you're ever in um, Pennsylvania visiting your brother or something, yes. up, up to, yeah, so absolutely, we'll definitely do that. Thanks for taking the time and talking. And you too, absolutely. Um, yep. Hey, I've, I've enjoyed your podcast, um, man. You're, um, yeah. Well, the podcast I emailed you about the testimony of that brother and yeah, and this uh, you released the PDF of his father-in-law's te- testimony, man. Yeah, yeah, Ernie Weber. Incredible. I've I've been in, in, in tears several times with that. Yeah. So yeah. Keep keep up the good work. It's it's a blessing. Yeah. Well thank you. Praise God for it's uh it's fu- it's fun to um I've enjoyed podcasting because it allows me to it seems like it allows me more easily to put other people's stories and perspectives out yeah. there than, than just through like the written uh yeah. article style. But right. um yeah, there's a lot of a lot of good people out there. A lot of things God is doing that we we need to hear about and and uh, keep us persevering, keep yeah. us hoping. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you too. I'll let you get back to your boys. Yeah, sounds good. Have a good All weekend. Right. Take care, Ashley.